Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us now is my very good friend, Michael Baer, the former three-time chairman of the Defense Business Board, who also served as a Deputy Commerce Secretary during the Reagan administration. He has also served on the Defense Science Board, the CNO's Executive Panel, and chaired the Army Science Board, among many other jobs. In each, he's been tapped to bring a strategic approach to solving complex problems, including working with the now Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Ron Moultrie, on a report for then Navy Secretary Richard Spencer that detailed the magnitude of software and cyber vulnerabilities facing the Department of the Navy. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Michael, thanks very much for joining us twice in one week, no less. Well, Bago, it's a delight to be here, and and I'm, I'm particularly touched to be able to be on something that has Andy Marshall's name associated with it. I learned, uh, as you and so many others, so much from that great man. Absolutely, and and indeed, uh, you know, in 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 our long friendship, uh, the number of times you've uh, invoked, as Andy would say, Vago. Uh, so that's uh, you know, we thought that this uh, series would be best uh, dedicated to uh, his memory. Uh, before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And uh, I should point out that Raphael USA sponsored our recent coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show in Washington, D.C. last week. Uh, Michael, you know, we have been talking for some time, uh, you and I, about how to align organizations for great challenges. And there is no greater challenge than the United States faces, right? We uh, had a major challenge in the Cold War and the nation aligned itself appropriately. Uh, We faced a challenge from uh, terrorism two decades ago in the wake of uh, the 9-11 attack and the nation aligned itself Uh, for that. And now the nation is once again aligning itself for great power competition. Although I will note that this is a challenge that a lot of us have been tracking for some time. So it's not a a new thing. The Chinese are roughly where it is we thought they would be, if not ahead of where we thought uh, they would be uh, in terms of their modernization. I, I don't want to put you in a position of sort of grand strategist, right? I mean, we've had Graham Allison and so many others on this program talking about that. But how do you see the problem? Because before you identify a fix, organizational or otherwise, you have to understand what the problem is. From your standpoint, what are some of the discrete challenges we face um, and the Department of Defense or maybe government faces? And how is it that we have to look at aligning the organization to deliver the outputs? Because the, the question and the challenge is that we may be too bulky, too bureaucratic, and too unwieldy for our own good. So define for us what you see as the problem. And then once we do that, we can get to a solution or solutions. Well, well, Bago, I think you put your thumb on it. This has been marked, this, this problem that you're dealing with, which is the inability of the U.S. to articulate clearly, the U.S. and its allies to articulate clearly what we're about right now is, is really just emblematic of a lot of other challenges that are existing within the enterprise. We can't even think of how to call it. There are debates about 
what do we call this era? As in the period between between the end of the fall of the wall and the beginning of counterterrorism, we spent endless hours trying to think about what to name it, but not enough time, I think, as senior leadership thinking about what is where are the nation's goals, what are the challenges and opportunities, and what do we want to focus our resources to accomplish on the global stage? There was a time a number of years ago in which senior people in the Pentagon and the State Department, they spent their time thinking, a lot of time thinking. There were open times on schedules. Today, if you look at those schedules of those senior leaders, they're cram-packed in five-minute intervals as though they were junior legal associates in a law firm, <laughs> billing accordingly. That's not, a, that's not what you put those people in those very high positions to do. They're brought in there because of their very unique experiences and backgrounds to provide something no one else can do, which is context and deep thought. And frankly, best done if it's done collectively. I mean, if I think back to the Reagan administration, the amount of time in which the senior leaders in that enterprise actually talked to each other. They didn't go to meetings, they spoke, they thought. They, Reagan would ride horses with people. Ironically, a lot like George Marshall, another great leader you quoted. Those kinds of times are the most valuable chunks of time because it enables leaders to do that, those things that only they can do. We've lost that. And, and that really bodes not well for trying to find solutions, let alone names, for the challenges that we're facing right now. Um, you know, you were uh, kind enough to join us uh, at the beginning of the week uh, to discuss uh, Colin Powell uh, and his, uh, you know, the man and his legacy. Dove Zakheim joined us as well as did Harlan Ullman. Harlan uh, and and he were very close friends for uh, many decades. Um, and one of the important messages of that was uh, the pragmatic approach that a Colin Powell brought uh, to the challenge and every, everything was about problem solving, right? I mean, ultimately, what's the problem you're trying to solve and, and how do you go about doing it? From from your perspective, what are, uh, and he would always, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, whenever you would ask him about whatever the problem was, you know, he would say, look, ultimately, this is about leadership. It's it's not about new organizations or, 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 or anything else. H how how does the enterprise, like for example, the Defense Department, right? It, it, the the challenge and the accusation is that it's a very it's a, a group of very thoughtful people, and yet the organization itself is not adapting and moving as quickly uh, enough. It, you know, if if you were a Martian and you were dropped on the planet in two thousand four, two thousand eight. 2012, 2016, you know, on these four-year centers and you come back, it's not abundantly clear that we fielded, a, 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 you know, any additional capabilities to counter a guy that we expected to have these capabilities roughly by now, right? How does the enterprise need to readjust itself to more quickly and agilely address threats from powers like China and Russia that are proving to be remarkably strategic and remarkably agile and remarkably bold in trying to achieve their objectives. 
Well, Bago, that that isn't that the sixty-four thousand dollar question? Because if you, you know, part of the department's legacy is the build out of Goldwater Nichols, and most of that build out occurred from in that era of of the peace dividend through counterterrorism. It was it didn't build out an organization, an enterprise and a culture to deal with a global peerage. It built all of that out to manage scarcity and deal with a tiny portion of the Earth's service, surface and a threat that was largely using improvised explosives and AK-47s. And the operations were being done at squad and platoon level scale. So it enabled this massive organization to collapse itself in on those very specific two challenges over those years, over those decades. And what built up were huge organizations in the joint staff and in the services and in the combatant commands to deal with matters that in other eras in, in the 80s or even in the 40s in the war that would have been managed by a tiny, tiny portion of the entire enterprise. And the senior leadership in those days, having delegated those responsibilities, were using their time to think profoundly about the future and exercising their leadership to ensure that their notions about what the second and third reel of the movie would look like, had the right people working those problems. Think of the changes that George Marshall made to the officer corps in the roll-up to World War II, and the changes that Dwight Eisenhower made after the invasion of Europe of his moving his flag officers and his units to accomplish very specific ends. But in each of those times, both of those guys, Marshall and Eisenhower and others before him, took the time to think because they already had a clear idea of what they wanted to do. They had thought that through. And they rec rec recognized that leadership was all about getting the right people to do what they had already decided to do. That's the challenge that we face right now. We don't do that because that's not what we've done for the last 25 years. And all of our enterprise, all of the organizations and all the culture is arrayed to do something else. And it's to do that at a very patient risk, risk uh, adverse approach. We don't see that we need specific people to solve a problem because we regard everybody is above average and essentially fungible. That's not reality. And so this, the challenges you, you've identified are exacerbated by this cultural and bureaucratic realities that are really ideally tuned for another era. So how do you change that, right? I mean, there, 
Um, for example, the promotion system used to be uh, remarkably unofficial, right? It, it, people knew who the fast burners were, who uh, you know would bend rules. It wasn't necessarily that every uh, I or you know every I was dotted, every T was crossed. And so we've tried to sort of take some of that out of the system, right? The indiscriminate nature of it. And go with, well, this person punched all of these tickets. But as we found in the beginning of World War II, for example, uh, there were people who were selected for a major command who was, you know, an FDR aide. And it turns out that wasn't the right way to do it. What's, what's the right approach to putting the right people in the right jobs and make sure that the system is promoting and retaining the right people? Because now we send people to get four or five degrees in a 20-year career and, you know, they leave as a, you know, 05, and that doesn't seem to be necessarily the right answer. Um, you know, and I would say some of the greatest military leaders we've had, you know, had a- an advanced degree. They didn't have five advanced degrees, right? What's, what's the right way to try to do this to, to make sure that you're harnessing the right kind of talent? And then allowing them to take risk because we have gotten into such a risk averse climate that, right, I mean, the whole notion of the 8,000 mile screwdriver was driven by that. Nobody wanted, you know, everybody was afraid of Don Rumsfeld roasting their chestnut. Well, Bago, I think the bureaucracy does a pretty good job of self-roasting as well. And and, uh, (laughs) if you think about some of the really best leaders that we've had, every one of them I shouldn't say everyone, but certainly a fair number of them that I know have run ships aground, lost weapons, or had other issues, any one of which in today's zero defect mentality would have disqualified them for continued service. Uh, So I'm actually a bit of an outlier on this. I think the answer to picking the right people and getting them promoted is not a process that is really equitable. Um, This is a profession and people who are excel in that profession have an innate ability to identify the people who really will emerge. I'll name two, for example, Art Sobrowski. God bless him, he's no longer with us. One of the most thoughtful people that we had in the Navy for the longest time. Art had been picked very early on as someone that the senior leadership, the flag off, senior flag leadership of the Navy had decided, this is a guy we've got to have run the Navy War College. But in order to do that, he had to be a three-star, which meant he had to have a two-star line job, which meant that was not, which was not really his natural strength. But there was a real effort to pair him to make sure that he had an XO who guaranteed that he would be successful. And Art was a run of the mill surface, I think he was a surface warrior as I recall. Uh, He was an aviator, he was an aviator. Excuse me, he was a run of the mill at that, but he was a goddamn, he was, excuse me, he was a juice, start over again. He, uh, He was, or Art was a genius at the war college. And the senior leadership knew that and they proved it. Another example, um, uh, Jim Stavridis, same way. Understood very early on his enormous potential. So those, if the system will work, 
a bureaucratic process substituting for the judgment and the leadership of the senior individuals is the wrong way to go. And we were able to do that and muddle through for 25 years. It would not have worked in World War II. It would not have worked in Korea. It got us into terrible trouble in Vietnam where we did apply it. And, and we used it for the effects we now see for 20 years in Afghanistan. I believe the solution is the opposite. It's empowering those senior leaders to say, we're gonna, we want you to build your bench. Your legacy is to find those really good people. Now, the other piece of that is the promotion precepts from 06 to 07. Those are solely in the hands of the service secretaries, but that, that gate you saw that when Richard Danzen opened the gates of the, of, of the intolerance that used to exist for any slight infraction of process. And the generation of officers that, that emerged from that were infinitely better than those before. So again, and again, it went to leadership. It was Danzen who changed the leadership pre selection precepts 06 to 07, and it was those very senior guys, and we've seen it happen time and time again, where if you talk to the senior leadership, they can tell you who the best guys are. Rumsfeld used to call in the service chiefs and say, who are the 10 best 07s you have? Brigadier generals, rear admirals, lower half. And every service chief could identify them. With that power, that blessing, why weren't those people fast-tracked? Because they had to go through the same wickets that everyone else does. John Henry called them the Stations of the Cross. <laughs> you had to do everyone in order. When in fact, you had people of extraordinary background, context, and insight who said, these 10 people, they are my bench of four stars when I'm much older and retired. I think that needs to be paid attention to. That's the kind of, that's the sort of world that best serves when you're doing great power competition, not bureaucracies. You were a big um, proponent of getting out of your comfort zone, right? As opposed to being in a military hothouse structure, it's important to step out of that, whether to do a corporate tour or, or what have you, right? Because otherwise, you don't know how the rest of the world is doing this. We talked about this with uh, Admiral Mullen, right? That the military can be a hothouse. And when you actually get out of it is when your eyes get open to different ways of, of doing things. Uh, you worked with the legendary Malcolm Baldridge, uh, one of uh, history's great cabinet secretaries. How, what, how do we need to be better preparing our talent base for a very, very different era and a competition that the United States has probably never faced in its history, uh, especially with an adversary that is much bigger with enormous resources and actually a lot of strategic planning that it's been doing to try to achieve its aims. Bago, I, you're right on. I mean, I think what you have to do is you have to take these leaders. It's all about leaders now, not the organization. Now we're focusing on leaders those leaders have to have their imagination stretched at all times. 
And there's a bunch of ways to do them. You mentioned one, you know, education in a place that's really different than the service academy hierarchy that they've done through commissioning to war college and so on. But, uh, but others are who they're exposed to. What, who are they meeting with and spending time with? We give each of these senior flag officers very large houses and many of them have staff and big dining tables. Those dining tables are the most powerful access that they have to information. Because if they have the courage and the, and the time, those, they can surround themselves at that dinner table with people who will bring them a perspective they do not have. The very best people who did that ended up, who, the people who ended up being the very best in the department are people who most often did that. If I looked at the dinner rosters that uh, Gary Ruffhead or Mike Mullen had, or uh, Dave Goldfein, it, it could go on and on and on. Those, the people they were spending time with at evenings without surrounding of staff and five minute blocks of time limitations, those things ended up being profoundly opening mindset challenges for those guys. But what we've in fact done is we've gone out of our way as enterprises to eliminate that kind of disconsonance in our thought because the staffs don't like it. The Jasons, which the Department of Defense supported for years and would bring in some of the most extraordinary insights, TED Talks on steroids, ideas that were so alien to the way in which the military mindset would work, would, were, but would have had a catalytic effect on the individuals as they went back and absorbed the normal inputs from the staff. The Jasons, the department wanted to shut them down. They didn't right. see any value in it because they couldn't get a direct A to B to C output. So to the SSG, that uh, senior studies group that the Navy had, we could go on and on. You know, the, the Secretary of the Navy did away with the Naval Research Advisory Committee, something that once upon a time had several Nobel Prize winners on it. So this anti-intellectualism, um, which is driven in part by the crowded schedules imposed and tolerated by the senior leadership, and also the staff that just doesn't like rivals for attention or time. And again, we're going back to, in this world, the whole enterprise needs to pay huge attention for how those most senior leaders spend their time thinking and, and conveying and communicating. Here's what we're going to do, and here's how I'm going to tell you to do it. You brilliantly described how wonderful General Powell, Secretary Powell was, at describing his strategic objectives. And he always worried a lot about who he had arrayed to do them. Um, I, one of the other uh, challenges, of course, right, whether it was with the Jasons or a lot of the advisory boards, is this is this uh, notion and a concern of a of a revolving door or inside uh, dealing, even if the outcomes are the right uh, kinds of outcomes, right? I mean, so we focus a lot on the mechanics of ethics laws, uh, so that it cannot be perceived 
than an Eric Schmidt, for example, if he's chairman of Google, excuse me, Alphabet, uh, may be getting advantage by advising the Secretary of Defense, putting aside actually that the advice that an Eric Schmidt might be able to give a Secretary of Defense, especially the right Secretary of Defense, an Ash Carter, for example, might actually be a dramatic needle moving uh, experience. Um, Just briefly, because you and Arnold Panaro uh, and I have discussed this, including on on this program, but what is a better way to do this so that you are addressing what might be legitimate concerns of um, um, self-dealing, for lack of a better word, against the benefits of making sure that senior leaders are connecting with the right kinds of people, right? Because if you're just relying on your own organization train to tell you what's good or bad, you're 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 going to get a stilted set of options at the end of the day, right? You you may not understand what the art of the possible is. You may understand the art of the possible of the people who don't want you to see another way of doing business, for example. Yeah, and Vago, through the 1980s, the Department of Defense was ahead of almost everything in the private sector, whether it was information management, logistics, medical care, and lots of other things. They really did set the pace, but that's no longer the case. And frankly, it hasn't been that way for a long time. Even on the cutting edge things like cyber, Uh, what we found when we did that deep dive into it is is that there there were many, many things and and aspects of the way in which the private sector approaches these things, which is far better than the way the Department of Defense does. So that is a a setup. Where the revolving door was was established, that notion was established, to prevent people from going into the Department of Defense with not a lot of background and experience and then coming out and enriching themselves essentially at the expense of the taxpayers who educated them and, and enabled them to have all those, those uh, points of contact. What, we, what I believe is today with the department trailing in many regards, even in the terms, often in terms of intelligence about how and what animates these very large enterprises that we see as global peers. That, that that department is better served by accessing the best of the private sector. And that that access enriches the department, not the other way around. A guy like Eric Schmidt doesn't make money by spending time with the Department of Defense. Au contraire, the department is actually enriched by, their, by his interactions with them. And the, in the defense aerospace contractors, they are enriched by the opportunity to get involved with the department and understand the strategic realities of what they're dealing with. So having them access the requirements and capabilities process at length, at arm's length, is really, really useful for them. And it'll produce a better generation of leaders in the industrial base. So the revolving door actually works. It must work. It has to work and it it enriches government. It doesn't enrich the individuals that are part of it. And we need to think, we need to grasp that and understand that the department can't win, can't develop the best solutions unless it has the best of global thinking in a lot of different dimensions. Right now, it doesn't have that. 
once upon a time, the entire organization had a tendency of lining over a smaller number of leaders. And we're sort of changed that dynamic a little bit, right? I mean, it's important for people to be empowered. You want people to be hard charging. You want people to be pushing the edge, certainly in an organization that you want to want to move faster. But part of this is knowing what, right? There are things that we need to do, and there are things that we do not need to do, right? Just like um, every organization, we have organizations on overlapping organizations and everybody says, well, the world is more complex. And so we got to be doing more as opposed to maybe taking a different approach where actually you need fewer people, right? How do you think about the enterprise, how you structure it, how leadership executes, right? Because we, we have a tendency of having a lot of leaders and not a lot of followers, and maybe we need to reverse that. Fewer leaders, more followers, right? So let's yeah, talk about that and yeah, then Bravo, talk I've, about what we need to do and not do because we have a tendency of saying, oh, I need more resources, more people, more of everything. And strategy is about making the most out of your finite resources, right? Let's, let's talk about the first problem. Yeah, so the, so I think that I tend to look at eras and I would look at say 1981 versus 2001 versus 2021. And when you think of the people who are in the department trying to ascertain do they have the right organizational framework, do they have the right culture to deal with the problem, they might reach back 10 or 15 years. Well, to me, there's a homogeneity between 2019 and, and, uh, and 2001. And frankly, I can go all the way back to the end of history period. And, and there, that, those sets of challenges and the size of the organizational growth through them is the legacy that we have right now. So I would standardize to the Cold War. I would look at what the department looked like in size in the 70s and in the very, very early 80s. I mean, we've often talked, you and I have often talked about how small the NSC was at a time in which we had, we really did have an existential threat from the Soviet Union and a not inconsequential set of things that we were worried about with China. And the NSC at times was almost an order of magnitude smaller than it was in say the height of Barack Obama White House. So going back to what did it look like when we last dealt with these kinds of problems and then argue from that baseline and the way, and not only in terms of structure, but look to what those people were doing. How much time did the Director of Central Intelligence, the Secretaries of State and Defense, and the NSC Staff Director, how much time did those people spend together in unstructured conversations? How much time did they go to dinner at one another's houses? What were the size of the staffs that they had? Those are the kind of questions that help you really begin to understand, my God, that's not what we have now. I mean, Bago, we have in service chiefs and combatant commanders, a kind of equilibrium of about 5,000 people in each of the staffs. Now the service chiefs would scream bloody murder if they had that. Say, oh no, that's not the case. 
Well, in fact, it is. Because if you look at the contractors, the detailees, and all the subordinate organizations that are buried around supporting them, it's a rough number of 5,000 apiece. Just think about the size of the World War II or Cold War staffs that we're dealing with that. And, and contrast that with today. There's no way a professional athlete can run effectively if they're carrying that much weight, dead weight in their backpack. That's the challenge we've got. So getting the structures right, um, getting, getting it thinned out because all of those 5,000 people are all have one object, which is to get time on of that chief, service chief, that combatant commander, add to their do list. The result of it is, is that you invert the process. The senior leaders end up being the action officers for the staff, not the staff being the action officers for the senior leaders. And regrettably, we're there. That's our problem. Goldwater Nichols had a lot of positive attributes, but the staff explosion has been tied to that. It, 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 do we need to have a complete rewrite of Goldwater Nichols? Are we creating jointness for the sake of jointness? And you know what I mean? Is, is, this, is the snake feeding on itself at this point or the snake generating more snake? I don't know what analogy is a good analogy. But, yeah. um, but, but Bago, I would begin with the UCP. I mean, I think it's two ends, the UCP and, and the joint. And, and for the audience, UCP stands for? Uh, uniform, unified Command Plan. So in, we left World War II where, where we had a, a construct that essentially had the army doing east into, Euro, into Europe and the Navy doing west into the Pacific. We now have, we have combatant commanders upon combatant commanders. And if an issue arises that involves China, we have to have, the Indo-PACOM commander, we've got to have the STRATCOM commander, we've got to have the TRANSCOM commander, we've got to have the SPACECOM commander. If we're going to mobilize, we're going to have the NORTHCOM commander and on and on and on. So if we're serious about where we are, we have to go back to where Jim Mattis was when he came back to the Department of Secretary of Defense, which he and his chairman actually began to think about, do we, does this thing make any sense? And, and do we really need a China command and a Russia command or whatever it might be? But the structure that we have is, I, is a product of 25 years of relatively inconsequential, strategically inconsequential focus and, and, the, and an explosion of staffs and staffs to counter staffs rather than what makes the most amount of sense. If it didn't exist, how would you do it? You'd never do it the way we do it. We never would do it like this, Vago. It's, it is guaranteed to make us Gulliver pinned down by the, by the Lilliputians, which is the staff. It's really an awful uh, approach. So what, what is it? So as you look at this problem, right? Uh, general and flag officers, time and again, I remember John Richardson uh, and Bill Moran looked at this issue for John Greenert, and at the end of the day was like, nope, we, we can't take work off of anybody's plate. I mean, that was ultimately, you know, that every, all the work that we're doing is good work that has to keep happening. And, and we all know that that's distinctly not the case, uh, right? What is it that we need to be doing? What is it that we don't need to be doing? Because Change is as much about what you do as what you stop doing or no longer need to do 
or no longer prioritize because actually it's not important, right? It's a, it's a time suck. That's the most important thing is time is your most precious commodity. Well, how do we need to look at what is what has to be done and what no longer has to be done? And how do we need to think about that? Well, again, Bago, because we don't have a clear view, strategic view of what this, what the movie looks like in our quote strategic competition, we don't know what the second, third, and fourth reel of that movie looked like. We haven't thought it through. We don't have an end state. And without that, then it's very difficult to go back and answer the question that, that, that you posed to Admirals Richardson and, and Moran, which is what of this is not useful? Because you can only make judgments about utility against an end state. Against this end state, do we really need this? That with, we can't, without, we don't have that end state. And so the, the bureaucratic inertia to keep doing things, to not make the hard choices, doesn't, uh, it, it prevails. And if I think back to the Century Series aircraft, there's a little bit of an awkward parallel, but you think about that time in which the Air Force was trying and discarding, trying and discarding, or trying, liking, using, but then realized in a couple of years, hey, the Soviets have something better. So were they discarded? That notion of competitiveness that everything they were doing was assessed against what the other guys were doing. I can't tell you the number of times in which I have met senior leaders of the department at the very highest levels. And I've asked them, who's your parallel in China? And they don't always know. And I ask them, what? You know, the, what are they? What does your what does your Chinese parallel do? How is he? Edu was he educated? Has he been to the United States? They don't know. Our focus is so inwardly aimed that we lose sight of the fact that this is all about the externalities. And yet, with the very large bureaucracies we got, the natural tendency is to drive everybody into a hyper focus on self. And that simply is not a recipe for success going out. You know, there's, there's always this chicken and egg argument in Washington, right? That, um, that you have to create a strategy and resource the strategy, whereas Andy Marshall would always say, strategy is about the balancing of means and ends, right? I mean, you, this, this is where you have to think. Uh, and there's this tendency that the United States, um, you know, that underdogs tend to think better uh, because they do have limitations, right? As a wealthy country, it's about, I got to do it all and I need more people and I need more of everything. How, how do we need to think about resources, right? Well, I don't, uh, I don't as, think, as we well, go through I, this? Bago, I don't think wealth uh, uh, diminishes thought. I mean- Well, you, it you shouldn't. It, <laughs> it shouldn't. I mean, but, but what diminishes thought is the thickness in process and bureaucracy. I'm just stuck on that because the- um, you know, we had, we had half of the world's wealth in the 50s and the early 60s, half of it, the GDP. That really mattered. It enables us to do everything. And we actually fought pretty well strategically during that time frame. You can, right. we can, historians will point this mistake and that mistake, but basically we fought pretty well. So wealth isn't the problem per se. Um, the lack of wealth stars out all of these distractions 
which sometimes enables much clearer thinking. But clearly in our case, you know, we have at a time of diminished relative wealth, particularly with the Chinese, um, what we have done is lavished money on ourselves internally. Uh, our spend inside is breathtaking. 60 plus percent of the entire defense budget is on people. Imagine you, you can look at the numbers that the, the, that, that parallel, that number with the Chinese is in low double digits. So that says if their people are five times cheaper than ours and they've got way more people than we do, then we really have to think about how we're going to do things differently. It's part of that strategic set of assessments that we've got. But that, but it begins, it's all back to leadership and thinking. If the leadership is right, the thinking is right, then we're gonna make hard choices. We're not just going to assume risk. Assume risk is the alibi for, I don't wanna think about it. I don't wanna make those hard choices. I'll just take a little more risk this year. Let somebody else sort that out. That's not a way you win. That's a way you lose. It's delusion and it's a disease. How, what is it, you know, it, it was interesting just before we started, we, we talked about Eisenhower that um, there is this sense that strategy is best executed by people who are underdogs, right? That what, you know, while we were growing, but as, as you pointed out, the United States was at its apex in terms of power, uh, economic, military, otherwise under Dwight Eisenhower, and, and he was pretty darn good at strategy, uh, as, as, as were some of his successors. What, what has changed between then and now, and how do we get better at this strategy game? There, there are glimmers that we're getting there and the organization is lining. I thought one of the positive things about AUSA is, you know, when, when the army starts to move and sort of wake up, you, you can see that. And that to me was palpable in terms of the nuanced conversations about logistics and how to think through problems and things like that. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of disagreement on that, but ultimately why do you think we were better at strategy before and what do we have to do now to get better better in the future because the clock is ticking and we don't have a lot of time to start getting this right if we want to keep deterring a guy who might actually be getting more dangerous as it grows weaker well bago i think it's we haven't gotten the senior leadership hasn't diminished in intellectual capability since those days but what has diminished is the investment that senior leaders made in making sure they had context and collaboration and invested heavily in what the strategy was going to be. Think of, of Solarium. Everyone constantly quotes it, but very few people have actually thought about how it really worked and the enormous amount of time and energy that the president, the president, the president of all the United States spent on that effort, unimaginable today. First of all, we'd ever let a president do it. I mean, God, we'd have to do this through all these senior groups and working it up. Everybody had to bless it and everything else. That was not the way Eisenhower did it. And, and those men, there were men in those days, those men, I'm sorry, it was all men, but those men of those days 
they invested huge amounts of time thinking about those, whether it was Curtis LeMay or any of the great leaders of the Army of the time or the Air, Air Corps, Air Force or the Navy. They realized they only had two things they had to do, get the strategy right and get the people right. And also, I think the other piece that we had in those days that Goldwater Nichols has deprived us of was the intellectual friction, the competition between the services to solve a problem. Now, because the joint staff is the arbiter of those things, everyone has to present collective solutions. That assumes that collectively we know the right answer. In fact, competition, again, from the private sector, when you've got a huge, thorny, awful problem you have to solve, you set people against one another in friendly friction to create the best outcome. And sometimes more than just pairs, you might have three or four sets of people looking for alternative solutions. That's not what we do. Everything is managed by these thousands of people who are ensuring there are no rough edges and that everyone agrees and everyone's equities are represented. That was useful in a period of diminishing budgets, the, the, the post fall of a wall peace dividend, and it was useful in CT because everybody wanted a piece of it. But it doesn't serve in existential competition. And, and history and the present are full of examples of why that is a recipe for failure. And, and getting that restored of having a chairman and a secretary and service chiefs that are willing to, to go head to head to each other in friendly competition to say, I've got a better way to solve that problem. And it doesn't have to be with everybody in it. We'll figure that out later, but let's allow the intellectual depth of the enterprise to create the solutions. That intellectual depth doesn't exist at the combatant commands. It actually exists at the services. They're the ones with the war colleges. They're the ones with the staff colleges. They're the ones with the enterprise depth to be able to really deal with strategic thorny problems. Combatant commanders, the way we're set up, are ideally set up to execute. But that's not, but we've actually inverted that over the last 25 years, again, because we never sat down and had an end state for Goldwater Nichols. We drifted from it was set up to make us better deal with global peers into just fine tuning for the problems of the moment. So we've got an evolution. We have evolved an enterprise to solve a problem, two problems that we don't have right now. And we need an organization that really is tuned, designed and capable of great power frictions. Um, we, we've got two minutes left, uh, three questions. One, um, what can the department learn from industry? Your uh, Dumbarton Strategies is your company. You advise uh, companies. Uh, you've been part of uh, boards and management teams that have done major turnarounds. What can the department, uh, whether civilian or uniformed, learn from industry to try to get this right? Bago, I think the most valuable lesson that corporate America actually global corporation leadership can teach the department is about existential competition. How those 
leaders of these very large global enterprises manage their enterprises and, and establish a culture and array people to win and to succeed every day against pressures beyond imagination because their war occurs every day, every hour, and all across the globe. There's enormous insights to be learned from people who excel at that. And the department could really access them and profit from it. Last question, example of great strategy, example of bad strategy. Bago, I think strategy is actually pretty simple. It's just a clear-eyed view of what you want accomplished. What is the end state you're desiring and a path to get you there? Although saying it is easy, doing it is hard. And let me give you two corporate examples, bad and first bad and then good strategy. Bad strategy, General Motors at the height of its power and wealth suddenly faces a market in which the demand is for small cars. Their view is, how hard is that? We know how to do that. Our staff, our manufacturing is better than anyone else's. And besides, all we're building is something with four tires. That's what we have. Steering wheels, we do that. And seats in the front and the back and an engine. How hard is that? The cars they produced were catastrophic and General Motors almost collapsed. And it redounded bad even for the country. Now the good strategy, let me give you an opposite view. And that's JP Morgan and Jamie Dimon. Dimon understands that the, that the old fashioned banking industry, the moving of money is being changed by the power of the information revolution. And he decides that his bank has to pivot to becoming an information technology enterprise that occasionally handles money. In each of those cases, the failure of leadership in the part of GM and the, the success of leadership in JP Morgan absolutely was based on strong dynamic leadership or the failure of that. And the results are pretty clear. Michael, thanks so very much for spending time with us. Really appreciate it. Um, always fascinating to talk to you and a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so very much. So Bago, I am, it's a delight to be here. And I think we all share the view that what we want is a defense department that's much more life and agile like JP Morgan and not stuffy and destined for failure like General Motors in those days. Great to be with you.